special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks. With Katie and Allie. Normally, it would just be Allie and I hanging out, having a couple cocktails, and talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are currently writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Wendy Rouse. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Wendy is a historian whose research focuses on the history of gender and sexuality in the progressive era, and today she's here to talk about her newest book, Public Faces, Secret Lives, A Queer History of the Women's Suffrage Movement. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Wendy, as you said, and I teach history at San Jose State University, and my research specialty is gender and sexuality during the progressive era, which is the early 20th century. And I specifically research women and children, um, the suffrage movement, and right now, as you mentioned, my book's on the queer history of the suffrage movement. Okay, perfect. Well, we're so excited to get into it. Uh, But first, we have to talk about the cocktail that Allie made for your book. So, Allie, what are we drinking? So, I made a cocktail, obviously named after your book, Public Faces, Secret Lives, and it is in a nice little coupe glass because of the era, Mm -hmm. and it is gin and violet liqueur and lemon juice, because I was trying to go with that white and yellow and purple Mm -hmm. of the suffrage movement, and then you just put a little white flower on the top when you take a picture, and then you put it on the rocks. That's and it. Cheers to you cheers. and your book. Oh, I love it. I love the violet too. <laughs> and it tastes delicious. Mm-hmm. It tastes like Elizabeth Taylor's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's jump into talking about your book. I guess, could you first, for our listeners, set the scene for the time period of your book? When and where is this taking place? And what is a typical person's life like during the suffrage movement? Sure. So the book is focused on the early 20th century, mostly kind of the late 1890s through about 1920. Um, Although when I dive into the lives of specific suffragists, I sometimes go into the more modern era as I trace them throughout time. And essentially women are fighting for the vote. It's um, prior to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And these suffragists are active in the campaign, and everybody that I talk about in the book is um, really invested in the fight for the ratification of the 19th Amendment, and they're all working in different ways on that uh, campaign. Great. So it's interesting because I was a gender studies major, so there were a lot of books that focused on kind of queer people throughout history, but yours is mainly focused on people in the suffragette movement. So can you tell us a little bit about one or two people who you feature in the book who maybe we haven't heard of? Sure. Um, The book, the cover actually, Mm -hmm. is a picture of Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. And she is one of the most fascinating people um, in the suffrage movement because um, she was active from the mid 19th century all the way up until like the 19 teens. And she was famous as a civil war surgeon and had earned um, honors for her work during the war. But she was also a dress reformer. Uh, She advocated that women should have the right to wear any clothing that they like. She was an early adopter of bloomers and later essentially just started dressing in what was considered men's clothing at the time. And she would be actually arrested for cross-dressing because many cities had passed laws um, against wearing clothes opposite of the gender that you were assigned at birth. And so she had, uh, was arrested multiple times, had conflicts with the police. And every time she was arrested, she would say, I don't wear men's clothes, I wear my own clothes. 
<laughs> so she's super interesting because she was really advocating for women's rights beyond just the vote, right? Your right to express yourself in any way. Um, so she's one of the queer suffragists that they feature in the book. Mm. So what kind of, obviously, um, Mary Walker Edwards is a great example of somebody who is wearing her own clothes and kind of stretching gender norms, but did people really have labels or terminology in the time period to describe who they were and how they were feeling? No, like the terms we use today, like LGBTQ plus, right? Those Mm -hmm. terms didn't exist back then. So these suffragists wouldn't have identified as lesbian because they literally weren't using that term the way that we use it now. Um, They wouldn't use the word gender queer, you know, even though we might look back and look at Mary Edwards Walker and say, okay, well, her gender expression is very gender queer. At that time, that's not what they would uh, use. So the terms we use today are not used. So we don't use those um, to identify them because they wouldn't, we don't know what they would have chosen if they were alive today. Um, But the terms that were most commonly used um, for people like Walker would be a mannish woman. That was very common. A masculine woman. And these were actually essentially at insults at the time to suggest that they were, like you said, stretching the bounds of, of normativity for gender or for sexuality. And since they conflated like gender and sexuality, right, these terms could imply that they were lesbian, it could imply that they were uh, gender deviants, but it was just this idea um, that they were stepping outside the bounds of what was considered normal. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's been a lot of research done on kind of the divides within the suffragette movement based on, you know, mainly race, but were there also divides between, you know, women who were representing themselves a little bit differently, you know, or living a different type of lifestyle or some of the mainstream suffragettes, like, please leave, like you're distracting the the people. (laughs) Oh, totally. You should read what some of the mainstream uh, suffragists were saying about Walker and others. Um, Yeah, they were basically saying that they were detracting from the main message. And the main message was, we want the vote, right? We want political power. So anything like, you know, dress reform, like Walker was advocating for, um, was considered too extreme, too radical uh, for the, for the later part of the suffrage movement. So essentially they said that these women were, were queer, but using that term in the context of the time, which was like, you know, they were odd, they were outside the norm. And so they tried to shut them down. They tried to push them out, um, especially if they were very vocal, like Walker was extremely vocal to the point that she would go up on stage and take the take the mic from <laughs> from, from other suffragists to try to um, make her point. Um, but then there were suffragists who were what we might consider lesbian or gay or bisexual today, and they tended to keep their public lives totally separate from their private lives um, to try to be active in the movement and to maintain that respectability. Because suffragists really highlighted the fact that they were wives and mothers and they wanted the vote to be better wives and better mothers, right? Because that respectability kind of politics really gained them mainstream support. So women who didn't want to be wives and mothers in the traditional sense um, were really deviating. And um, so what they had to do is kind of keep that part of their lives a little bit uh, under the radar. So you really see them having, like I say, for the title, right? These public faces, but secret lives. Mm. And I, that really leads really well into our next question. How did, or how did writing about these women help us when we're reading to better understand the private lives of people in the United States? 
Yeah, I think it's just important to like keep in mind that there are these different histories, right? That it's not always clear, um, especially when you're looking at like official biographies of women of the suffrage movement. You might notice that things are missing, like <laughs> who their partner is, who their, uh, uh, or that might say something like their companion. So it's important to, I think, look really a little bit deeper at people's lives and think about you know, there was always this public front, but what was their private lives like and who were, who were they involved with? And so I think it just kind of makes us also look at um, social movements a little differently as well and to think about the politics at play, uh, how important like respectability is, but how damaging it can be for marginalizing people who are outside of the norm. Yeah. Mm. And did writing this book and researching it kind of change your relationship to the suffragette movement and maybe some people that, you know, you'd regarded as heroes or heroines, and then you're like, wow, they treated that person pretty terribly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Actually, sometimes I really love the people that I researched. Like, I, I started to feel like, oh, I can identify with this. Or, mm-hmm. And then some people I just honestly didn't like. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Once I got into the, to the, re- I was like, oh, we would not be friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think I went into it a little bit thinking that that it was curious to me that there was these women who were all actively involved in the campaign and that they had these intense relationships with each other. Sometimes they were friendships, sometimes they were enemies, and sometimes in these cases they were lovers. And then I kind of wanted to know more about those relationships and how they framed the movement. And so I actually started exploring it from that way. And um, as I got into it, then I would literally start reading their letters and their diaries. And then I kind of come to know them a little better. Mm -hmm. And it definitely changed my perspective. Now, I didn't research like like some of the more famous leaders because there's been so many biographies written about them. So instead, I tried to focus on people who were active and important, but who maybe weren't like as known as some of the other players. So, so Yeah. It's interesting, too, that you brought up labeling earlier, because it's something we talk about a lot on our show about, you know, posthumously labeling somebody when they couldn't choose that for themselves. What are um, the dangers in that? Or what are the ways in which it helps to represent people, specifically people who consider themselves asexual or aromantic, to look and say, oh, that's someone like me? Yeah. And, you know, the labels, labels are constantly changing. And so I think that's why it's important not to put a label on someone in the past Mm -hmm. to say, you know, we can't really say for sure this person was, was lesbian, gay, asexual, aromantic. We don't really know unless we know. And then if we know, (laughs) we can say, although they aren't um, with us today, so we don't know how they would identify, Mm -hmm. you know, this behavior is typically defined today as Right. And so we can say it like that. But generally speaking, yeah, we try I try to avoid uh, making any kind of labels. And but to to put the information out there, like they had a sexual relationship with this person. So if they were alive today, they might identify as lesbian or bi or pan, you know, or or we don't know what these these two individuals relationships are. Maybe they were aromantic. Maybe they were asexual. We don't know. Mm -hmm. And do we know, because um, I believe one of the terms that they use was a Boston marriage. Was that around this time or is that a little bit different? Um, yeah, late 1890s. Okay, perfect. So were there, were Boston marriages and kind of same-sex living situations more common than we think? Or was this a really rare thing? 
I think it was more common than we think, but it's rare for the time period. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a very small subsection of the population, right? We're talking about elite upper class women, um, mostly those who had gone to college. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a very small percentage of the population, like less than 1% probably. And so it's like, uh, very few women, and then these are women who chose to live together either because they needed the economic security of living with somebody else. Um, maybe there was a, a partnership, some sort of partnership, like business-wise, like they're both in the same field or industry, or in some cases, these are romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. So that's what a Boston marriage typically was, mm-hmm. um, and it was a term that came at that time to describe two women living together. Mm-hmm. So when people sit down to read this, are there certain things that you want them to relate to in the suffrage movement that maybe they had not thought about before? You know, a lot of times we're reading about the Elizabeth Cady Stantons um, and the Susan B. Anthonys, and you have one view of the suffrage movement. What is the view that you really want people to see when they're reading this book? Ooh, that's a great question. I guess to really think about how the women who were involved in the suffrage movement were all very different. Mm. So it's not okay to just say they're all just like Elizabeth Cady Stanton or they're all just like, right? Because there were women fighting for the vote because they hoped the vote would then take them to another level, right? That they'd be able to fight. Some, some women were literally hoping to get the vote so they could end violence against women. Mm-hmm. Some were hoping to get the vote so that they could... Um, fight for economic equality to equal pay and some were thinking that they just wanted the ability to not have to marry if you know to have that independence to not have to marry um and some were fighting for their right to dress as they please so i think just thinking about the fact that just like movements today are made up of all kinds of individuals so was the suffrage movement and that each individual suffragist had their own motivations uh, Mm -hmm. for being involved in the campaign Mm -hmm. Now, when you kind of thought about writing this book, would, did it kind of come to you in a moment? Did you find some person and you're like, this story needs to be told? Or had this been kind of ruminating for a bit? <laughs> you know, I think, I can't quite remember if people asked me that. I think it had been ruminating because I was actually, at first I was interested in relationships between the suffragists. Like I would find mothers and daughters who were in the campaign together. I would find sisters that were in the campaign together. I would find like, mothers who got into arguments with their daughters because they were in the suffrage camp. So I think I started thinking about relationships first and how like those, how they literally like let go of relationships to be a part of the suffrage campaign. And then they gained new relationships. Mm -hmm. And then when I started looking at that and started thinking about what were the relationships of all the women, then I started seeing queer relationships, like very clearly I was like, oh, these two women, they live together. Oh, they willed their entire estate to each other. <laughs> oh, they wrote romantic poems for each other. So I think once you start looking for something, um, you start to see it in a different way. And that that's really what took me on that path. Oh, interesting. So you, I mean, you brought up journals and then, and some letters. What other types of research did you do to really find some primary documents or was a lot of it secondary stuff? No, it was almost all primary. In fact, what I did is I went through lists of suffragists um, in specific organizations. And I, first I looked at who was married and who wasn't, Mm. um, who was maybe divorced. Um, And then I would try to figure out if the people who were single, either because of divorce or because they never married, I would look at the census records and see who they lived with. 
And then I would try to make connections that way. And so if I found a woman living with another woman, then I would go and research that person's life and try to figure out what their relationship was. So then I would go to their diaries, their letters, their photographs. I would dive into um, any type of, of document that I could find about them. I would sometimes contact descendants and try to figure out what information they had about the relationship. And probably the weirdest path I ended up going down, which ends up becoming almost a whole chapter, is I started looking at their death like information, like literally like who did they will all their property to? Um, where are they buried? Who are they buried next to? So I ended up in the cemetery a lot of times <laughs> and found that many of these queer suffragists were buried next to their partner, their lifetime partner. So it's interesting, um, it, a, a weird but interesting uh, diversion that ended up ha- leading to me writing an entire chapter on death and no. suffragists. Yeah. Now, was there a person that you found who seemed really interesting, but there just wasn't enough? Like, were you kind of hoping that one person in particular had another secret diary that you could get more information from? Oh my gosh, almost all of them. I yeah. wanted more. <laughs> um, probably Annie Tinker, because mm-hmm. Annie Tinker appears as larger than life in the book sometimes because she dressed very mannishly, as they would say at the time. Um, and she was very bold and active in the suffrage movement. She marched in suffrage parades dressed in uh, masculine clothing and led a cavalry of suffragists on horseback in the New York City suffrage parade. But when I tried to research her personal life and figure out what her relationships were, I found that it had been mostly destroyed. Mm. And I was curious as to why. And I found that the woman that she willed all of her um, property to upon her death had actually destroyed the letters uh, that she had written. And there's a conversation between her and Annie's lawyer about their need to destroy these letters. Um, And it appears to be because um, Annie was a bit wild and (laughs) also um, apparently because she had relationships with multiple women, but there's just little like hints here and there. Mm -hmm. So I would say to the readers, if you're desiring to know more, so am I. (laughs) Half the time I just couldn't find it. And so what you have is what we were able to scrape together, knowing that so much had been destroyed on these people's lives. Yeah. Did you feel a lot of pressure juggling this, um, this history and like this time period along with the, um, you know, with the queer identity, or is it something that you're used to being a historian and teaching it on a regular basis? I think it was hard because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to find evidence of queer lives in the past and you're, you're wanting to label, I think, I think that's, that's the hardest part is, is everyone, you know, you're searching for those labels. I think I did want to find like a diverse array of queer suffragists who represented like all of our modern identities. So sometimes I just couldn't find evidence of that. I know a lot of people ask me if there were trans suffragists that I could locate. And I was like, there honestly, there was one trans man who I talk about in the book. If he were alive today would probably identify as a trans man. Um, but there's, there wasn't a whole lot of representation of trans identities. Um, so that's frustrating too, because I was looking for evidence uh, of that. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think I felt pretty comfortable with the subject matter and I was excited to, to dive into their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a favorite part of the book that you were writing and was there a part that you didn't enjoy writing as much? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think 
I think the part I didn't enjoy writing as much is probably, ooh, it's too hard. There's, there's (laughs) There's always parts where you get bogged down anywhere where I didn't have a whole lot of evidence, but I wanted to talk about that person. Uh, because their their lives were important important maybe in other ways. Um, the person that I loved writing about was Alice Morgan Wright, and she actually appears in a couple places in the book. I would have liked to have written her whole story together because she's just fascinating from the time she was in college till her death. She's just an amazing like suffragist. So I'm a little disappointed that I had to like cut it up and have her in different parts. But I would have liked to have spent more time on her and just like been able to use her almost as a case study for this entire book um because she was a suffragist um who fell in love with women her whole life in college in the suffrage movement she had crushes on other suffragists and so she has lots of stories in there and then she ends up being the lifelong companion of another suffragist and they end up uh, dying around the same time and you know they have this wonderful life together uh after the suffrage movement so i think she i would have liked to spend more time on on alice mm-hmm. well this has been amazing. I would love to for you to tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can find this book so that they can dive in and learn more about these women. Sure. The book's available on Amazon right now. It comes out May 24th and it's also available on at nyupress.org. And I have a website at wendylrouse.com. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you for coming on. This was so fascinating. And it really does make you just want to read the book and I don't know, find a little piece of yourself in these women. (laughs) So thank you so much again. Thank you. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye